Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, August 10th. We begin with a look at the devastating effect the pandemic has had on Calgary's downtown core, from restaurants to pubs and various entertainment venues. We get the thoughts of Jason Ribeiro, Director of Strategy at Calgary Economic Development, on the future of the core and what needs to be done to bring it back to life. Outbreaks are inevitable. That's a quote from a professor of law on the upcoming return to school for Canadian students. We'll hear the professor's thoughts on what he believes our schools need to help mitigate the risk. Next, we head stateside for a coronavirus update. Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, has the details on the latest milestones south of the border, hitting 5 million cases over the weekend. And finally, with over 150 research teams on the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine, we get the thoughts of the progress being made from our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. As bars, clubs and music venues emerge as high-risk sites for COVID-19 outbreaks, A team of experts has developed a playbook for nightlife survival. We're getting details on what this might look like from Jason Ribeiro, outgoing curator of Global Shapers Calgary. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Uh, Thanks for taking the time, Jason. And I guess, you know, when we talk about nightlife, it doesn't necessarily have to be a nightclub per se or or a bar for that matter. But it's the downtown core in our city that we really want to focus on because it's faced challenges in the past. And I would think this pandemic's got to be a real monkey wrench thrown at our downtown. Yeah, you, you know, you frame that quite uh, quite succinctly. Look, you know, the, the article points out that, you know, the nightlife scene um, and the, the nighttime economy is is in need of a bit of a rescue here. You know, the impact of COVID-19 has been quite devastating, but, but necessary in many cases because bars, nightclubs, et cetera, have been linked to these kinds of super spreads um, for, for the COVID-19 virus. And, and the impact on, on Calgary's downtown has, has been drastic. But the challenge, I think, going forward has been, and I say this during my uh, director of strategy had at Calgary Economic Development, mm-hmm. is that we were building a lot of momentum around revitalizing our downtown, making sure that um, you know downtown was not just a place to come and work, but downtown was a place to uh, come and play, come and live. Um, and that included, you know, a really vibrant entertainment scene. And so the way that we were tracking was to build up investment, to build up the vision that, you know, here is a city that wants to solve these really great challenges. And I, I think that we're we're in the same place we were before. We're trying to figure out how do we not only help uh, these entertainment venues uh, safely reopen, but also how do we make sure that we're uh, taking advantage of uh, building a nighttime or experience-based economy that gives more people reasons uh, to be downtown and to contribute to Calgary's economy? Yeah, yes, indeed. And at the beginning, I didn't mention, yes, yeah, you're the director of strategy at Calgary Economic Development, so this is very much in, in your uh, sights. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, having grown up here and uh, Calgary is... You know, uh, where I spent my formative years as a teen and moving into adulthood, it seems to me the downtown has always been a a case of closed after 5 p.m., empties out, and people seem to squirrel away in their little suburbs and check out those restaurants that are in the strip malls. How, How do we change that with the added challenge of the pandemic? That's one thing, but what do we have to do? You know, it's a great question, and I think it's one that we were very well aware of before the pandemic. You know, when we think back to 2018, when we convened uh, over 1,800 business and community leaders around what is this vision uh, for Calgary's economy that we want to foster, that we want to champion, and that we want to attract investment into our downtown core, but also the broader city. One of the questions was, what role does downtown play? And so we've taken a concerted effort to really understand that, look, 
you know, while that may be the way that, you know, Calgary's economy has evolved, has evolved historically, um, and while communities are becoming more complete on the periphery, uh, becoming more mixed use, more walkable, you know, great cities want to have a great downtown. And I think Calgary uh, certainly uh, plays, plays ball with the best of them in that, in that regard. And so one of the things that we've done is, is to try and champion, you know, key investments in downtown, you know, just last week, we had the Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund uh, announce, you know, Alta ML uh, and Harvest Builders, who are going to be making significant investments in our in our downtown. But more so, thinking about what that means for d- downtown revitalization. And so, even last week, the mayor announced um, Chinook Blast, a midwinter mm-hmm. uh, festival that's going to launch next year, um, to be able to bring activity downtown. We've had numerous conversations with property developers and owners and, and folks who contribute to arts and culture in this community about how do we activate even some of the underutilized assets, including office space, to give that over to the public realm, to give that over to arts and culture. And all of those uh, things have been warmly received. So while we understand the challenge right now, we've mm-hmm. understood that challenge for a number of years. And Calgary and the new economy, our economic strategy, really outlines the roadmap for how we make a dent in uh, bringing arts, life, and culture into the downtown core. Good stuff. I think we'd all benefit from a vibrant downtown core. We appreciate, uh, particularly after hours, we appreciate your time this morning, Jason. Thanks, Andrew. That is Jason Ribeiro, outgoing curator of Global Shapers Calgary and director of strategy at Calgary Economic Development. Such an interesting question. And, and you know what? Uh, it's it's tough now to even think about it with the nightclubs closed. Uh, not that downtown anymore in the year 2020 is nightclub bill like it used to be where you'd have the big Kayleys, as, as Dave mentioned, Roadhouse. Now, Knoxville, that's probably one of the last ones uh, because Cowboys isn't the same. And uh, when we talk about all the nightclubs, again, that really lasers in on the younger set. I know I'm not going to be taking uh, my wife to a nightclub per se, um, in particularly, uh, you know, um, well, obviously not right now during the pandemic, but I'm talking post-pandemic. So we have to move beyond just the younger set thinking that it's the hip place to be. We need more consistency into the downtown core. So it's a very interesting conundrum. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe you have an idea, you know, send us a text anytime, 403-974-8255. What's it going to take for you to get excited? And maybe this pandemic is a good reset a good reset to, to really drop plans on well, how we want to see the downtown core. What would it take for you to leave the suburbs, to, to take a cab, to take transit, to park the car downtown? And, uh, you know, not that you have to have an, an alcoholic beverage, but the fact of the matter is if, if you're getting together with friends for, for several hours to make this your destination, the downtown, is it is it new restaurants? Do you need new uh, fancy restaurants? Again, we know what the state of the restaurant industry is, but is that what it would take, maybe a cluster of you know, you, you get out of a cab, you park the car, and there's seven or eight choices within walking distance, and you feel that vibrant downtown core. You don't even have to make a, re- a restaurant reservation because there's so many choices. Is it better parking in the downtown core uh, through evenings and weekends? I know that a lot of the, a lot of the parkades offer the toonies. Is it a case of transit uh, not being uh, convenient for you where you live? If that's the barrier, it's going to take quite some time. Because transit, uh, as we know, we've talked about it many times in this program, it's uh, it's years down the line, but maybe that's the fact. Maybe you don't have an opportunity to hop on the train, so you'd, you'd rather stay in your suburb, close, maybe walking distance from your house. And then, of course, you look at the Arena District or East Village. Maybe that's it. Maybe we have to wait until that's up and running because the East Village will have, uh, from what we're told, uh, not just be an arena, but be a quote-unquote entertainment district.
maybe that'll be enough of a lure to, to kind of jumpstart. I mean, it is the East Village, let's be honest. It's not the downtown core per se. It's to the east and hence the name East Village, but maybe it might be enough to grab interest and in, in, in spark that change that we need and, and uh, kind of jumpstart again the other part of the downtown core. If you've been to any of the other cities and it's salt in the wound when you talk about Edmonton, but that's exactly what they've done now. Lots of restaurants around the arena that we well, no fans can go to right now that fans of, of a hockey game could spill out while go before or spill out into the pubs or grab a bite to eat. Toronto's done uh, something similar. Maybe Edmonton has even done a better job. I've not really walked around. I've just driven past the uh, the district in Edmonton. But areas down in the States, like, you know, Phoenix, um, they have, uh, I've been to NBA games there, and there's so many different restaurant choices. It is a full district. And you look at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. I mean, yeah, these are big cities. I get it. Uh, but maybe that's what we need to wait until the East Village, the entertainment district is up, and that will pump in the extra excitement and add on to our downtown core. Well, at least the conversation is open now. Let us know your thoughts. What would it take to get you downtown after hours, evenings, or weekends? 403-974-8255. The text line always open. It is 617. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. We're starting to see a little bit of building north and southbound volume on Crowchild Trail between 16th Avenue and Memorial. That will add a couple minutes to your commute. Westbound 16th Avenue approaching Crowchild Trail. The right lane is closed from this morning until next Monday evening. Expect some minor delays there. Over on Deerfoot northbound, about a 25-minute drive from Okotoks up to 17th Avenue and southbound on Highway 2 from Airdrie up to 20 minutes as you make your way down to Memorial Drive. The Love You by Shoppers Drug Mart program is committed to advancing women's health. Visit shoppersdrugmart.ca slash love you to learn more. For the 770-CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. It is the morning news right here on 770-CHQR. My name is Andrew Schultz. Sue DL is off this week on holidays. Uh, coming up just before 8.30, online summer camp for kids. Yeah, we'll get details on a camp it helps kids socialize, build up their skills in a safe and monitored environment. It's a different world, but that doesn't mean that summer camp still can't be happening. And in one minute, with the start of school now just a few short weeks away, we'll speak with a professor of law who believes outbreaks in schools are inevitable as they reopen that first week of September. Right now, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy established amenities, recreation facilities, and the leading school districts. A drive time of up to five minutes from Barlow Trail up to Southland Drive. Southbound Deerfoot, a 15 to 20 minute drive from Airdrie down to Memorial. Over on Glenmore Trail, lots of pylons out the road between Sarcy and Crowchild. Paving crews are out in that area as well. Shouldn't that too much of a uh, time to your commute? Just watch for crews in the area. And there is a a collision in the southwest 53rd Avenue at 1A Street. Emergency crews are on scene. A message from Canadian Blood Services. Blood donors are needed to fill over 2,200 appointments in Calgary this month. Appointments are required. Book now at blood.ca. From the 770 THQR traffic helicopter, I'm Bill Jensen. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. Boards announced their reopening in September. Parents worry about two things. Will my children and I be safe? And will my children learn appropriately? Well, our next guest believes outbreaks in schools are inevitable. 
We're joined by Professor of Law from the University of Ottawa, Joseph Magnet. Good morning to you, Joseph. Good morning. It, it, you know what? That sounds a little stark, and I, I would think that your your prediction and uh, your ideas that uh, outbreaks will be inevitable would scare parents, but it's something that you've come to a conclusion for, and how did you come to that? Uh, well, if you look at the experience of the 20 countries around the world that have reopened, all of them experienced outbreaks. Israel, for example, had done spectacularly well in controlling the virus, and it thought that uh, because of that experience, it should try to reopen its schools. It did, and there was a terrible outbreak that uh, made Israel Brazil-like. So uh, it had to close the schools again. Um, you can read a report of its minister of education now to its partners in the West saying, we tried this, don't do it. It's a huge mistake. We made a big mistake. And this experience of uh, outbreaks in schools has been repeated in country uh, after country in China, uh, Germany, uh, and of course we can see the tragedy in the United States to ourselves. So, so these uh, schools had to completely shut down, not adjust? So uh, everybody wants schools to reopen. Mm -hmm. um, everybody wants their kids to go back to school and to learn and to be safe. If, if we're going to do this, mm -hmm. we have to make the schools as safe as possible. That means uh, renovating some of the spaces. It means installing protective equipment, uh, plexiglass shields, um, uh, and all of that. And uh, that hasn't been done uh, here in Ontario, and I understand it hasn't been done in Alberta. Uh, the schools are older. Uh, it takes time to do all of this. And... Um, Time has run out. Uh, I don't see any way that our schools can reopen safely in September. I think if we made a concerted effort uh, to renovate our schools, to install the correct equipment, to impose a masking requirement, uh, and to do some other things, um, to test the children in school every day. There are procedures being developed in various academic and government labs for children to spit into a salt solution, stick uh, an indicator in it and get a result within 15 minutes. If, if the schools could do this, um, uh, we at least would know that we've done everything possible to keep our kids safe. But this has not been done uh, in our schools and, and, and it would take time to organize. So I think September is just taking a huge risk without having minimized uh, the risks. And I don't think it should be done. So, you know, the, the the timing is one part, like you say, to get these renos done for the schools. And I would also think money is an issue because, yeah, when you say renovate the schools, I, I know in Alberta, I'm not sure about Ontario, but the budgets are super airtight at this point. I understand the difficult situation in, in Alberta. Mm -hmm. I, I think everybody feels for that. Um, so Ontario has allocated $309 million for a uh, school reopening plan, but none of it uh, goes to school renos. It's going to hiring cleaning staff uh, for buses in the classrooms, uh, some nursing services, purchase of personal protective and other medical equipment and that sort of thing. So I think that the dollars in Ontario are not adequate 
Um, and look, you know, billions of dollars went sloshing around the federal coffers to keep people at home um, to build up deficits because the interest of those people were at heart. You know, the interest of our children has to be equally at heart. So if we have to spend and we have to run up some deficits to send them back to schools, so be it. Uh, look, we're in a pandemic. We're in an emergency. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you for your thoughts on this, Professor. We appreciate it. Okay, very good to talk to you, Andrew. That is Joseph Magnet, Professor of Law from the University of Ottawa. Law professor saying expect cases when the schools are reopened. What are your thoughts? I know that one of the options, even at this point, parents would have the option. Are, uh, the streams were, were created before uh, summer to have online school exclusively for your children. Is this something that you're thinking about, or do you find it important enough with risks present, according to the lawyer we just spoke with, uh, to have your kids in classroom? You can always send us a text at 403 974 That's 403 974 Right now, 8.17, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. We're getting reports of a stalled vehicle on the exit from southbound Deerfoot to Memorial Drive. We're just going to make our way over there now and check that out. Elsewhere in the city, on Glenmore Trail between 37th Street and Star C, there's lots of pylons out and paving crews in the area. Uh, two east and westbound lanes open, but uh, not seeing too bad of delays. Drivers are slowing down as they pass through. Over on Deerfoot northbound, only about a 15-minute drive from Cranston and Seaton up to 17th Avenue. Southbound Deerfoot also looking really good, about a 15-minute drive from Airdrie down to Memorial. And just a reminder, on westbound 16th Avenue at Banff Trail, before you get to Crowchild, there is now a right lane closed for construction that will last until next week. Can't vacation? Then staycation. Visit the Subaru Staycation Sale for incredible rates from 0.5% and a lease bonus up to $1,000 on 2020 models. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Bill Jensen. 708 on the morning news. Another weekend has come and gone and COVID-19 numbers have hit another shocking milestone south of the border. The U.S. has now hit the 5 million mark when it comes to cases of the coronavirus. With the latest, we are joined by Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Well, the 5 million mark for cases over the weekend. Any reaction from residents to this huge number and uh, the, how quickly it came to be from uh, you know previous months? Well, I mean, look, the, the U.S. has kind of had to deal with the fact that this virus uh, doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. Uh, and they've also had to deal with these milestones now on a more frequent basis. I mean, look, it took 99 days for the U.S. to go from zero to one million cases. It took 15 days to go from three to four million cases. Uh, and then it took 17 days to go from four to five million cases. So this is something that people have simply just come to expect that without any kind of national rollout for a strategy, these numbers are only going to continue to climb at a rapid pace. And you mentioned the pace. Uh, What about cases per day in the United States? Do you have any numbers on, on how many new cases are being recorded? Yeah, I mean, look, the numbers are still high, uh, high from uh, a health aspect and high from an aspect when you're looking at a president who says that things are under control and that he believes things are going to go away. I mean, over the weekend, Florida posted its 13 or 14th day in a row of cases over 6,000. California, over 6,000. Texas on the approach to 6,000. All of these states already have more than 500,000 cases uh, individually, but you're also seeing expanding numbers in areas 
through the Deep South into Tennessee, Louisiana, and Georgia. And Georgia alone, we saw those issues last week when kids went back to school, uh, and there have now been outbreaks uh, from kids, a, a you know, in grade one through grade eight, causing kind of a concern as a number of parents this week. Uh, millions of parents actively send their kids back to school, or at least those schools that are opening. Any any word of maybe a pullback of that plan? Because I mean, obviously, out the gate. You don't want to see uh, those kind of um, results. Yeah, look, Georgia, that one school in particular uh, where pictures had come out last week, they went to an online learning program, but just for today and for tomorrow, they say the school's going to be cleaned and then they'll go back uh, to an in-class lesson. Uh, you know, it kind of varies across the state. Georgia's doing a bit of a hybrid. Florida, on the other hand, you know, 532,000 cases. Uh, we're now hearing that the state is actively uh, pushing to get more kids back in school. Teachers are pushing back and retiring kind of at a larger uh, rate than they normally would here. Uh, and we're hearing now now from the Florida uh, governor that there's kind of uh, you know a behind the scenes conversation to stop health officials from talking to school boards and telling them information that could make them want to potentially close. So you still really have partisan politics playing into the pandemic. You, you ran down a laundry list of those states that have increasing cases or the cases continuing to be high with consistency. Any states that have stabilized that you, you can look at as a shiny point or other states should look at as an example of what to do? Well, I mean, look, New York is is obviously the kind of uh, uh, poster boy for what to do, you know, take things at a serious rate, slow things down, and then you end up getting uh, an infection rate in and around 1%, which is why you're seeing New York's governor uh, kind of give a green light to schools. If they can keep infection rates down, those schools will be allowed to open. But, you know, you'll oftentimes hear some of the, the U.S. networks talking about a stabilizing picture or things are kind of uh, are kind of holding steady. The problem is they may be holding steady, but they may be holding steady at a high rate uh, of daily cases and that's not something where uh, health experts want states to be they want to see things pulling back not holding steady at five six and seven thousand cases per day not just blocking a hole in the dam but preventing it i guess that would be a way to look at it also reading over the weekend that uh, many areas through europe uh, different government officials and even people who were polled on the street asking what is up with the u.s why aren't they taking this seriously and, and i read you know that a lot of the european outlook is that they did not have the lead up. They did not have the kind of a many weeks advance warning that the U.S. had. So now people outside of the U.S., other countries are starting to ask what's going on. Well, I mean, look, I think one of the questions that needs to be asked is if this was not an election year, would the response have been different from the administration? Would there have been less of a, uh, of a, a kind of focus on the economy and trying to ensure that this economic engine was rolling forward as it has for the last three years? If it wasn't an election year, would there have been more a focus on attempting to, you know, uh, uh, ensure the health uh, and safety of Americans? But because we are now, you know, less than 90 days from an election down here, that really has been the brunt of the focus for the president who is keen on ensuring that he gets a second term here uh, and really has kind of pushed science and pushed his health advisors to the side. And I think that is something that the rest of the world has taken notice of, where the president continues to say that things are okay, except for the fact that these numbers are now increasing by a million every two weeks. Let's talk about the, uh, you know, when it comes to Donald Trump, the new federal unemployment benefit plan. I believe it was $600 per week to those in need, and they had to retool it and look at something Trump has rolled out $400 per month to extend it, but maybe uh, a top-up from the states. Can you break down what's being put forth? 
Yeah, look, this is a really complicated uh, scenario in the U.S. where the president has kind of taken it upon himself to enact some new laws to try and roll back payroll taxes and try and get unemployment taken care of. $600 was the benefit that expired at the end of July. The president is now offering $300 a month from the federal uh, uh, budget and then asking states to chip in an extra $100. The problem is states don't have that kind of money. They've put really uh, been put into deficits because of the virus. Uh, there are secondary questions, though, because the president is looking to take this money from the fund that FEMA uses for hurricane response in the U.S. And we're obviously heading into peak hurricane season now. And he wants 44 of the $70 billion that have been set aside. This is causing a lot of fights right now in Washington. There's no consensus from both sides as to how they're actually going to roll this forward. The president, again, though, is looking to do anything he can to try and get any kind of economic injection here again with that election less than 90 days away. I'd like to, uh, you know, before we let you go, uh, touch on a Reggie Cicchini classic tweet from Twitter, which is, um, you know, when people ask you about COVID-19 and and if it's real and perhaps it's mainstream media making a a big deal out of something, making a mountain out of a molehill, you say reporters are not making things up when they talk about COVID-19. Case numbers are provided by local, state and national health agencies, along with leading research centers and universities. And uh, to be honest, on this side of the border, we hear a lot of it being mainstream media. You can't make this stuff up, though, Reggie, when you're, uh, you know, handing out numbers that are factual. Yeah, look, these numbers do come in from universities, they come in from health centers, and they come in from the Centers for Disease Control, uh, which obviously is a U.S. government organization that just is a nonpartisan and nonpolitical organization. The issue is here is that a lot of times reporters in the media will get hit from uh, with criticism and comments from people who are solely listening to President Trump when he's giving information out. And we've seen poll after poll come out that say, shows that Republicans overwhelmingly believe the president over the scientists and the science that's being reported there. But when you have millions upon millions of cases in one country and the president says there's too much of a focus on cases, you have to look at what the president is saying. The cases exist because this situation is not under control yet. I'm not making these numbers up when I say that Florida had more than 6,000 cases. That was reported by the Florida Health Agency. Florida is a Republican state. They're not gumming up their numbers. At the end of the day, these numbers are real. The virus is real. And you have to pay attention to what the science is, not the people who are speaking that don't have medical degrees. And part of the science is we we have our mandatory masks here in the city of Calgary now for indoor public facilities and uh, public transit, mandatory, including taxi cabs and Ubers, for example. We've had people question the science of masks. I'm wondering if you're uh, seeing the same thing down south. Yeah, look, masks are are growing in popularity in the U.S. There are more than 30 states now, including a number of Republican states that have now mandated masks for uh, in and out uh, of public buildings. Or if you're traveling outside Washington, D.C., you have to put a mask on simply if you go outside of your house and you're over the age uh, of three. Uh, There are still some critics who say that wearing a mask causes more problems. But at the end of the day, you have to look inside of an emergency room in a hospital, in an operating room. A doctor wears a mask for a reason because it stalls and slows risks of transmission mission. It's not a 100% fail-safe, but it is an opportunity, according to every health expert that has spoken on this, uh, to slow the spread of the virus, uh, which is the one thing that, that uh, you know, is kind of key right now. Get those numbers down, slow it down, and do it any way possible, because people don't want to go back into a shutdown. Absolutely. Thanks for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Right now, 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. Delays are clearing quickly on 
westbound Glenmore Trail as you make your way onto northbound Crowchild. There was a collision there blocking the right lane. On westbound Glenmore Trail approaching Sarcee, lots of pylons out in the road, slowing down drivers a little bit. And on eastbound Glenmore Trail by 37th Street Southwest, there are paving crews, there are lanes closed through the area. Traffic volume is fairly light, but you should expect delays as crews move there throughout the day. Over on uh, Crowchild Trail, or sorry, westbound 16th Avenue, approaching Crowchild Trail, there is some new construction that starts this morning. The right lane is closed westbound until next Monday evening. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SO and mobile stations. Visit PCOptimum.ca for details. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. On the morning news, the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19 underway across the globe. We've heard some promising news from a handful of the over 150 different teams vying for an effective vaccine and even details on how some research has entered the human trial stage. With an update on the search for a coronavirus vaccine, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. So what are your thoughts on the research you've seen, uh, you know, again, across the world? So there was just a report uh, last week, and it actually looks quite favorable. So it's still very, very early into this, but there are two different vaccines that are moving forward and moving forward in a very, very good way. So one is coming out of England, out of the UK. Uh, They're calling it the Oxford vaccine. And it definitely appears to be safe so far as not causing much trouble and it appears to be efficacious, meaning it's, it is working, it is causing antibodies. If there's one, well, there's perhaps two things that they still have to sort out. Number one, will it work in very elderly folks? Mm-hmm. And number two, will people need two vaccines more than one? So I've definitely noticed that if they give a single vaccine, they get a good response. But people who received a second vaccine got a much, much better response. So if it does keep going down, we may need in maybe a double uh, set of vaccines. So this was based on a, a chimpanzee. Uh, cold virus or adenovirus. Mm. Uh, so they're also calling it the ch- the chimp vaccine. Um, but it looks very promising. There also is one coming from China. Uh, it is actu- actually probably a little further ahead in the studies. Um, and similarly, in many ways, it, it looks like uh, if you only give a single vaccine, your response is not quite as good as if you give uh, a second vaccine. This one is based on a human uh, cold-like virus. Um, and again, the studies are looking very good. Uh, their data looks uh, more a month out as opposed to two weeks out. So the in the UK data, they're looking at, at day 14, what is the immune response. In the Chinese uh, study, they are looking at day 28, and their stats look very, very good. Again, it looks to be safe, not causing a lot of trouble, and it looks to be able to provide that immune response at that one-month mark. So do you now have confidence, or do you have any opinion on, on whether or not we, we could see a vaccine in months and, and not a year or two? Well, it looks, again, it's so early to tell. And um, But so far, I would say it's going to be sooner than later. Now, the initial 
projection was a year, a year and a half. But these trials are now in phase three, which is actually fairly advanced. There's four four phases to clinical trials. They're already in the third phase, uh, and things are looking pretty well. Now, there's speculation, uh, and I I can't speak to this. Is this true or not true? But companies uh, such as the Chinese uh, vaccine company that's going to be doing this, uh, the UK is an AstraZeneca product, that they may already be mass-producing these vaccines even before there's proof uh, that they work just so if uh, the studies do come through positive, looking good, they will already have uh, millions and millions of units of vaccine produced and ready to go. Um, And if it doesn't look good, I guess they will be destroyed, but they're going to be one step ahead uh, as opposed to proving it works and then mass producing it thereafter. So that will actually speed up the process also. And I don't believe that's ever been done with any vaccine in the past. It's a different time. Thank you for the update. We'll uh, count it as a bright spot. Thanks, Dr. Jablonski. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.